How many warriors does it take to fight off a band of cannibals? Um, uh, 12? No, more than that. Okay, 14. Mm, too many. Hello, satirists, and welcome to Swords and Satire, the podcast where we turn low fantasy into high art. I'm your dungeon manager, Jamie Mulkel, here with my Viking co-host. It's Chelsea here, old when your grandmother was young. (laughs) (laughs) Well, this week, we watched 1999's classic... Viking fantasy horror movie, The 13th Warrior, directed by John McTiernan, legendary director of Die Hard, and starring Antonio Banderas, Vladimir Kolich, Dennis Storhoy, um, a, lot of, a lot of Norse people, a lot of Scandinavians. That makes sense. That makes sense. Yeah. Omar Sharif is in yes. it for a very brief amount of time. Yes. Um, quit acting after making this movie for a while. Yeah. Fun fact. I guess it left a bad taste in his mouth. I, yeah, I can see that, I suppose. But before we get too much into all those little bits and details... I think Chelsea probably has a summary ready to go. That's right. So this movie is set in the 9th century. And we start with a character who is in Baghdad. Uh, this is Antonio Banderas' character. Ahmad Ibn Fadlan. And so he's a scribe in the Sultan's palace. And he falls in love with a rich man's wife, and so... Classic folly. Yeah. He's basically evicted. (laughs) (laughs) He's canceled. He's canceled. He's sent away on a mission. He becomes an ambassador, and he's sent to the far north. It's basically to get rid of him. I guess he was well-liked, so they didn't want to kill him off. They just wanted to get rid of him. I guess being sent away to the frozen north is better than being killed. I mean, the character didn't necessarily think so at first. That is true. Um, so he's sent to the north. We He's not really given a diplomatic mission. He's just kind of, like, told to go away. And um, so he goes north to the Tartar Empire... Modern day Mongolia, Russia, kind of area. Could, it could be a pretty broad uh, land mass that he could have been in. Right. And um, he's traveling with his friend, played by Omar. Sharif. And he's acting as Ahmad's translator. And so they meet up with Bulvai and his gang. <laughs> <laughs> They're, they're a uh, singing and dancing troupe. Right? <laughs> yeah. This is just after their chieftain was killed in battle. So they don't know the language, uh, Ahmad and his translator friend, but his friend does know Greek and one of the other Viking dudes spoke Greek. 
So Herger the Joyous. Herger the Joyous, one of the best characters in the movie. One of the best characters in any movie. <laughs> yeah. I have tr- I've I've watched this movie many times over the years. I've tried to model my life after Herger. Nice. <laughs> so they befriend him pretty quickly. They speak the same language, so that makes that kind of thing a lot easier. Yeah, not not like a prerequisite, but definitely yes. makes things easier. More on that later. We also see Bolvi kill somebody who's probably his brother over what seems to be a minor disagreement. Yeah, well, his brother pulls a knife on him. A minor disagreement <laughs> for Vikings. Okay. And then they call for the bones to be read. They call a vulva in. Like you do. And um, she's basically an old crone who's a seer. And she comes in to um, cast the bones or the rune and the runes. She has a little bit of both in her uh, leather satchel. She's a versatile vulva. Yeah. So she's a wise woman. And she is going to be doing a little bit of divination magic for uh, Bolvi, the new chieftain. This is after they get a messenger into their camp who is asking them to come on a quest to help his father, who's the king of another Viking tribe. King Hrothgar, making me guess that this is probably Denmark that they're heading to. Yes. Because this story is basically a fan fiction mashup of Ahmad ibn Fadlan's real life. You know, he was a real life historical figure. And... Also um, mashed up with Beowulf, which is basically what the story is. Yep. And so she casts the bones and determines that 13 men need to go on this mission to help save this faraway king. An auspicious number. Yes. So 12 of the Tartar Vikings uh, agree to go on the mission and the 13th one has to be a man from another land. So... Our man, Ahmad, basically has to go with them, and his fate has been sealed. It's not clear how much say he has in this choice. So he travels with them to this other kingdom, and they get enmeshed in a real fucked up situation where this other Viking village, its I guess it's kind of like a kingdom. Um, it's a large village slash kingdom, yeah. And they learn that they're being besieged by... Another group called Vendals. Who people kind of don't believe in at first, it seems like. Or are skeptical that this is really happening. Yeah, and there's a lot of rumors going around that they're actually demons attacking them. And at one point they realize that they actually are men just in bare costumes when they attack. And there's a lot of fear around fighting these Vendals and until they realize that they are actually men. And a lot of the fear has to also do with the fact that they find out they're cannibals. So Ostensibly. We don't really see any cannibalism more than alluded to, I suppose. Yeah. And so they eventually decide to go and strike the Vendals in their lair. Uh, bull, this is Bullvi and his group. 
So they track the trail that the Vendals left behind them back to their cave lair and go and attack them to kill their queen and their warrior leader to try to demoralize the Vendals so that they will stop attacking this kingdom. And demoralize <laughs> they do. Yes, so they do end up killing the queen mother of this cannibal group during this raid, uh, Bullvi and his men, and most of them make it back to King Hrothgar's hall. Although they've lost about five or six of their number up to this point. So they're about they're about at half strength by the end. Yeah. And there's an epic final battle at the end when the warrior leader leads the rest of his troops to try to attack uh, Hrothgar's hall. And Bulvai is able to kill him during the battle even though he was poisoned by the queen in his earlier fight against her. And so he's able to kill the warrior leader cannibal guy before... Warrior leader cannibal guy as he's uh, listed on IMDb. <laughs> before Bulvi himself dies of the poison. and Very dishonorable way to fight a Viking using poison. Yes. And so the rest of the cannibals just kind of fucking leave because their leader's dead. I mean, if your boss died in the middle of work, would you stick around or would you just go home for the day? I'd probably go home. See? Yeah. And so they hold a funeral for Bulvi and Ahmad actually leaves at that point to travel somewhere else because I assume he can't go back home. Unless there's a statute of limitations on uh, sleeping with a rich man's wife. But probably not. Yeah. Maybe he's got a new, uh, like, commission for his ambassadorship. Yeah. So he's uh, just kind of going off without really talking about what his plan is. So he just kind of bounces, and that's about the end of the movie. So uh, there's your summary there. All right. Well, on that note, I guess it's time for the delve, where we get deep into the themes, making of, scenes, and anything else we want to talk about for the movie. The 13th Warrior. Alright, so, it's interesting that we've got kind of this amalgamation of historical and then, I, I mean, Beowulf, um, the story that this is based on, partially is, um, I mean, if it's historical, then we don't have uh, enough data to uh, historically determine where the uh, Grendels and the dragons and stuff were. And the movie kind of, like, does things to create like a feeling where the characters have say a, a mythological belief or fear and then it's kind of disproven so like a really good example is the fireworm you know they're they're afraid of of a dragon and then at one point in the fog we see um this line of fire kind of moving through the hills and people think that it's uh, this fire dragon, basically. But yeah. uh, Fadlan kind of rides out and proves that it's actually just people carrying torches. But, like, these Wendels are, or Vendels are kind of exploiting people's fear and superstition in a way by creating this illusion of a fire dragon. And they also have created the illusion that they're 
like werebears, basically. Yeah. Well, you're right. This movie is kind of like a weird blending of historical account, mythology, and the fevered dreams of Michael Crichton. <laughs> um, so there is a lot of interesting myth that's discussed in the movie. And I thought that it was kind of like psychological warfare. Oh yeah, totally. I mean, it's kind of interesting because the Vendals must know about this myth of the glow worm that the Vikings have. The fire dragon. Yeah, because they specifically use the torches and wind their way down the mountain so that they look like a dragon. Yeah. So they're using psychological warfare against the Vikings, striking fear into the heart of their enemies so that they're easier to defeat, uh, supposedly. Yeah, I mean, either they know about the legend or they are the origin of it. Like, they've been doing this to kind of, like, instill the fear. But I've got the, the feeling, based on the way the characters spoke about it, that this was a legend that went back generations. Okay, well, I mean, it seems like, I mean... There's probably some common ancestry, right? There's Between gotta be. the the Vendals and the Vikings. Yeah. I mean, their names are so similar. Yeah. <laughs> this goes into um, one of the themes I saw in the movie, which is fear of the other. Yes. And um, big theme in this movie. <laughs> and we were talking about this before. It's basically uncritical of this othering that humans do tend to do without the intervention of relativity. (laughs) (laughs) Well put. So the us versus them mentality is kind of an instinctual human thing to do. Right. And we have culture to kind of teach us how to be better (laughs) than that. Hopefully. Although Uh, oftentimes culture might teach us to be worse. True. Um, So it's it's interesting like the anthropological idea of cultural relativity uh, was inspired from Einstein's theory of relativity about right. time. So that that's interesting, a little interesting tidbit. Right. For those uh, unfamiliar, the anthropological concept of cultural relativism is basically the idea that we don't judge our own culture as being better than other cultures that we study. We kind of try to look at culture as every culture has its foibles and its positive qualities, and you can study a group of people without thinking of yourself as better than them. So this is a a very kind of uh, vague description, just because this is a big concept that colors a lot of, well, both of Chelsea and my thinking, because we're both trained in anthropology. Yes. I mean, yeah, just in the broadest possible terms, it's the idea that... When you study a culture, you don't treat them as being less than your own culture. Yeah, so what ends up happening if um, you don't take a relativistic view is that you can have this fear of those that are different from you. And it's basically the opposite of understanding and acceptance. And so what happens to the other is they're often dehumanized and, and this happens... Uh, We see this happening today with narratives of immigrants, 
And in the movie, we're saying they're uncritical of this. It's a kind of a negative human trait because the Vikings see the Vendals as something less than human. They, When they find out that they're cannibals, they say that they're not men, even though they're clearly human. And in the movie, they're even portrayed as more animalistic. I mean, humans are animals, are part of the animal kingdom, but, you know, non, they sound like a non-human animal. They grunt. They don't seem to have a complex language structure. They just, they kind of grunt at each other or growl or screech. Yeah. The, I mean, the biggest problem, I think, one of the biggest problems with the movie is that, like, the Vikings have this perspective and the movie seems to share that perspective. Right. We never get anything about the Vendals that prove them to be anything else than these kind of brutal barbaric savages. Like they we don't really see any motivation to what they're doing. We don't see any humanizing moments where we we realize that they're like fighting to protect their indigenous land or anything. In fact, like they seem to have this thriving unstoppable culture they're almost like swarming pests yeah i mean and again like going back to a lot of narratives about immigrants and stuff in our culture they're treated as this kind of unstoppable scourge right and i mean it just doesn't make any sense in the context of the narrative the vendals have this like huge civilization kind of removed from everyone else and they they outnumber the vikings by a huge margin they don't seem to have any like comprehensible motivations they seem to have enough um they're supposed to be cannibals but they have enough food and nutrient to sustain this massive population of healthy warriors yeah and they're um they use bear totems, so they won't, they, you know, historically that means they wouldn't be eating bear meat. So they're supposed to be cannibals who have this huge population. I mean, oftentimes in the real world, cannibalism is a last resort for anyone. Right. It and is they're... for people who have been pushed to the periphery and whose culture is, or uh, whose uh, livelihood is basically uh, unsustainable without resorting to cannibalism right and they're also by portraying them as goddess worshipers with oh yeah a female leader a headless female leader apparently yes but their priestess is a woman oh with that too yeah She's one of their, their mother. She, their mother, she she she's called, but she's basically one of their leaders. Along, she kind of seems to co-lead along with that warrior leader guy, who seems to be the more important one, right? Because like they kill the mother, and the she, Vendos still are motivated to attack. The mother is the spiritual leader, and the warrior is. The leader. The, war, the warlord. Or the, the warlord, yeah. So their spiritual leader is a woman, and they worship uh, a, a goddess. goddess. It's This is a so, classic Venus goddess figure, but uh, uh, with no head, which I think is often how we find these um, figures. Sometimes they're found that way. Sometimes they've been found with the head intact. Right, which is... But, I mean, the, the funny thing about the film is that 
it kind of implies that the headless goddess figures that we have found were always headless, which right. is kind of <clears throat> ridiculous and asinine. Yeah. <laughs> so what I'm saying like, is this movie might have a problem or two. Right. The, Unbelievably. The, the figurines would have been intact at the time. Yeah. But um, my point with that is that it's another way to villainize feminine power. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, this movie is lacking a lot of critical understanding of how people actually work and how cultures actually come together. But I guess much like um, maybe a lot of modern audiences too yeah. would be lacking that understanding. And it's also a lack, a, an extreme lack of understanding of how uh, humans work and how human ancestors work. There's, It almost seems like they're supposed to be uh, proto-humans of some type. But even if they were right. Neolithic, that was Cro-Magnon. <laughs> <laughs> right. Yeah, I mean, they're kind of like the archetypal, like, monstrous, like, troglodyte that's yes. often portrayed in so, films and media. Yeah, and I think that's a stand-in for Neanderthals, but Neanderthals were very similar to Cro-Magnon. Right. They were a little shorter and stockier, but they had a similar brain-to-body ratio. They had language... They had complex forms of thinking and were capable of abstract thought processes and had a social structure similar to Cro-Magnon, our, our ancestors. Right. Um, I don't know what Michael Crichton knew of these anthropological concepts when he was writing the book that this is based on, which is called The Eaters of the Dead, which was going to be the name of this movie, but right. they changed it. So uh, there are a lot of misconceptions out there about Neanderthals and Cro-Magnons, and so this this movie's no exception to that. <laughs> <basically>. <laughs> right. So it just kind of a fun aside too. These two groups reminded me of, you know, Skyrim a bit. Like Skyrim, <laughs> but there's so many connections between this and Skyrim. <laughs> yeah, it was like the Viking group, you know, Bolvani's men and then King Hrothgar's uh, kingdom. The Jarl. All the Viking groups, you know, and their their kin were kind of like the Nords. Yes. And then um, Skyrim for the Nords. <laughs> and the Vendals, or the Neolithic people, as they were portrayed, uh, were kind of like the Forsworn. Right. Our our, our our cat Loki is sneezing in the background. So yeah. He seems to be uh, allergic to himself tonight. <laughs> so yes, the Forsworn. So it was kind of like watching the Nords versus the Forsworn played out in film. Bethesda had to have been inspired by this. I mean, and uh, I and then so. going so far as Vladimir Kolich, who plays Bolvi is Ulfric Stormcloak in Skyrim. And yeah. that's the voice actor who plays Ulfric, who's kind of one of like the major characters in Skyrim. He's got the perfect voice for it. And he's He does got, have a great voice. Yeah. And he's like he looks like the perfect depiction of Beowulf himself. <laughs> <laughs> he does. He's got that perfect kind of uh Viking countenance. Yeah, with the long hair and everything, too. I mean, it's pretty cool that... Just like um, the icing on the cake, you know? Yeah, the <laughs> icing on the Viking cake. Yeah. <laughs> it is pretty cool that they cast Coolidge for the role of Ulfric. But yeah, there, there's got to be some major inspiration between this film and, and Skyrim, you know, obviously a lot later on. So, our two themes, we're about to introduce our other theme, and when you hear it, you'll understand that this movie was kind of in conflict with itself or maybe it was Michael Crichton who was in conflict with these two <laughs> ideas so the other thing we noticed was this 
theme of acceptance and belonging. Right. Very odd two themes that don't go great or that go oddly together, I suppose. Yeah, and this was specifically surrounding the character of Ahmad. Yes. So it was interesting to me that Antonio Banderas and Omar Sharif's characters are kind of like ninth century anthropologists. Yeah, they kind of are. Which um which well, actually they're, they're writers, historians and diplomats. So right. Yeah, I kinda Which this tracks really well with the <laughs> historical period. Again, Ahmad ibn Fadlan was a real life historical person who actually lived and who wrote a lot about the Scandinavian cultures of, mm-hmm. of that time period, of the medieval and, and earlier period, the Viking Age. He did record um, information about things that we see in the movie, too. Like, there's a scene where the Vikings are cleaning themselves with a communal bowl. Mm-hmm. Historians have guessed that there might have been some bias in that writing, that they probably weren't, like, literally reusing the same water that they were, like, washing their faces in and blowing their noses in. They probably got, like, they probably had servants, like, getting fresh water for everyone. Right. But Fadlon did say that this was how it was happening. Um, To be fair, real quick, little aside there. So this is something that, you know, all researchers deal with bias creeping into your your work. And um, at any stage of your work. Right. And so it's it's something that researchers try to be careful of today, but it, it's really hard to avoid completely. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And, I mean, Fadlan recorded tons of information that is, for historians, uh, a great record and a very reliable source. Yeah. Um, and I, I like the way that they uh, blend that into this movie. I mean, that is kind of one of the more interesting, clever parts of the script has is the fact that um, Antonio Banderas's character is kind of uh, like he's able to integrate with the Vikings through this kind of competitive rivalry where there's kind of a series of one-upsmanships going on. Well, he's always on the outside of the group until he can speak their language. <laughs> Which I know is ridiculous. So, but just thinking about it yes. kind of on the outside, it's interesting. No, it makes perfect sense. But yeah, in the movie, he's like traveling with these Vikings, like we said, like... Not sure how much he's really into the whole idea. This is when they start their quest while they're traveling to King Hrothgar's Hall. Right. And uh, Omar Sharif has left at this point, so he doesn't have a translator who speaks the same language as Harriger. Right. And suddenly the movie starts, you know, the, the, the actors are speaking um, a Scandinavian language. I don't I, I don't know if it was, it's probably Norwegian. Um and then they yes. suddenly start speaking English to show the audience that now um, Antonio Banderas' character is understanding the language. Yes. And, and then he says something to them. He insults the mother of one of the Vikings. and uh, Oh, no. Uh, no. He says that at least I know who my father is. Well, what happens is that one of the other Viking men is making a joke and then... Right, they're insulting into, him. Turns it into... A joke at uh, Ahmad's expense, right. saying something about his mother, and then he's defending his mother in their language suddenly. Right. And then and then makes a joke about his father, like you said. Right. But it's just this ridiculous thing where he's been traveling with them for a few days, and suddenly he's learned to comprehend 
the entire Old Norse language with perfect understanding and syntax. Yeah. Uh, it's just, it's and crazy. Saying, he starts to use all these words that he'd never heard them say. Yeah, it's just, it's the magic of movies. It's it's the universal translator on the Enterprise that lets every, um, you know, space alien speak the same galactic common that the Federation speaks, or whatever. Yeah. <laughs> and there's this terrible moment when, where Herger is, like, kind of mad, and he goes up to Amon, and he's like, I thought you couldn't speak our language. <laughs> and then Antonio Banderas is just like, well, I listened to you. <laughs> yes, all it takes to perfectly comprehend a language is to sit and listen to a few conversations for a couple of days. It was terrible. It was terrible, but... and it is one of the hilarious parts of this movie. Because there's so many, like, just ridiculous lines of dialogue. Yeah. Like, the other one I really love is... And, and you know, the, the way it blends culture is really interesting. Where they've been in battle, and they've lost some of their warriors. And Herger tries to offer uh, Ahmad some mead. Yes. And Ahmad, you know, is Muslim, so he says he can't drink... The distillation of grape or grain. Yes. And Herger just starts laughing and says, Honey, it's made from honey. Yeah. And then Ahmad goes, Oh, shrug, okay, I guess I'll get fucked up now on this alcohol because yeah. I've got a, um, you know, because God works in very specific ways and you can totally pull loopholes and not have a problem. And when we were watching the movie, Jack made the point that, like, it was kind of, like, bending the rules a little bit. Kind of, like, it's <laughs> rules as implied. Versus rules as implied. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he was definitely going with a rules as written interpretation of the Quran. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> I guess he figured since he just survived a battle, it was fine. Sure. <laughs> I mean, it's just, I mean, it's just, the movie is so ridiculous, and there's so many moments like that kind of throughout. But, but yes, kind of acceptance. getting past this ridiculous notion that you can just listen to a language and then suddenly start to speak it after a few days. Let's get past that and just say, okay, now they're sharing a common language. Yes. And um, they're beginning to grow some affinity for each other. Right, exactly. It's, it seems like when they are able to communicate with each other... They're able to find common ground, and he's able to get past the point when they're testing him, and he's they're accepting him a little bit more. Yes, but it's a very antagonistic friendship throughout. It is, but... but except with Herger, it definitely... he He's certainly the closest with Herger. He was accepting of them almost right away. Yeah, I mean, Herger is the joyous. He yeah. just He just likes people. Yeah. He's a very social guy. That's yeah. why, I, like I said, I've modeled my life after Herger. Yeah. So, um, they do start to accept Elon more after he goes back. When Once they get to King Hrothgar's Hall, he's helping them fortify the village. Yeah, and he proves himself to be a, war, uh, a capable warrior. Then he's truly accepted by them and like he really you can really tell that he belongs with the group. Yes. I have to point out another ridiculous scene though where Ahmad takes a viking broadsword and has it milled down to a scimitar which is not how sword crafting works. Yeah, that was that bonkers. Thing, that <laughs> thing would break as soon as you hit somebody with it. You can't take 
a straight forged blade and just grind it into a curved blade. That is not how sword making works. It would be... Its integrity would be compromised. Yeah, I mean, yeah, you've taken out the central heft and strength of the blade. I, I, I'm sorry that I don't know all the terminology for blacksmithing. I probably should. Uh, we have friends from Renaissance Fair who are sword makers and stuff. Yeah, true. Um, but I, I just, I, what I do know is that you can't take a straight sword and grind and bend it into a curved sword. Yeah. That much I can guarantee you. Part of what helps Ahmad's path toward belonging with this group is that they share trauma from these battles. Yes. And and so they have having this common enemy kind of brings them all closer together. Yes. Faster than they might have otherwise, uh, you know, come together. Right. So all of these things actually kind of ring true to some extent. Like the very basic way that it works to get to know a new group of people. Right. Yeah, you have some testing periods. Once you learn, you know, the way the group works, like their language, whether it's an actual different language or whether it's just a group that has their own internal group terminology. Yeah, slang, shorthand. shorthand. Once you learn how to speak with the group and you learn their, like, in-jokes is one way. Yeah. You will start to find that you are gaining some acceptance. It's kind of like assimilating. Right. And so you can start to become part of the group. Right. And um, that is actually kind of accurate for the way that works. I mean, it's it's very simplistic as it's portrayed in the movie, but it's it's just it's like the gist of how it works. Yeah, I mean, we'll give them a little bit of leeway for being, you know, a film where you have to explain a lot of information in a short amount of time. Yeah, I I I wanted to point out one other thing that kind of gets Ahmad um, in a, you know, starting to integrate with the group is that uh, Bolvai identifies that he can draw words. Right. He, he, Ahmad knows how to write, and Bolvai wants to... It seems interested in history and, and the ability to write words and, and to record information, because yeah. uh, somewhere at the end, like while Bolvai is dying, he says something about maybe you'll draw the story of my life, you know, draw the words of the story of my life or something like that. Yeah, and he thinks that he'll be seen as like a rich man who was oh right who had That's what prestige it is. basically right. He believes that if his story his life story is written down, then he will yeah then he will be shown to be rich and to have prestige, which is a nice allusion to the Norse Adas and the story uh, Havamal, where Odin is sharing wisdom with the reader and says that, you know, kinsmen die and you'll die, but what never dies is the fame that you win for glorious battle. Okay. So that is like, that's basically what Bolvai is saying is I'm going to die someday. You live on in the story. Right. But if I live on in the stories, then I'm basically immortal. Right. And that was like a Norse value. I at least as is recorded yeah. in the records that we have I like in that, the Ada. Yes. So before we move on, I want to talk about at least one more scene that is uh, one that I've, you know, I, again, I've, I've watched this movie a lot of times, and this one has always stood out to me. There's this scene where Herger, who is, I'd say he's not an old Viking, but like he's he seems to be kind of like the, kind of the elder statesman of the group to some extent. Like he's the charismatic one. And we don't see a lot of his, like, battle prowess early on. 
And when they when the Vikings are in Hrothgar's kingdom, Hrothgar has a son, uh, Wiglaf, who is kind of uh, a douche, I'd say. <laughs> yeah. That's probably the best term for him. Yeah, he uh, just, he's kind of trying to do a dick measuring contest with a bullvi. <laughs> yeah, and like, there's also a thing he says that I, that bullvi says that I don't really understand about killing his brother, which I guess... Wigleaf has done that, but it also seems like Bolvi might have also killed his own brother or something. It's confusing. It's very confusing. referencing something that you never have heard of before in the movie and didn't get to see. Yeah, we're like missing some important backstory. Yeah. But so, uh, Bolvi knows that to kind of make an impression on Hrothgar's people, he needs to have one of his men kind of like... Uh, measure dicks back <laughs> on them. Make a show of force. Yeah. So he kind of nods to uh, Herger and says, like, hey, you need to, like, make an example of their biggest guy. And then there's this gigantic... I, I mean, he's kind of a... He's a very Celtic, like, tall, red-haired guy who named Angus, who, I mean, that's not really a Viking name to the best of my knowledge, but maybe it is because there's so much... Uh, crossover between Celtic and, and Viking people today at least but yeah. regardless <laughs> so Harriger, um starts a fight with this guy by throwing mud on him he gets into a fight to the death like you do <laughs> yeah. and um, Ahmad is freaking out like he doesn't want his friend to die yeah, he doesn't understand their customs fully yet. Right. And so he is kind of thinking about it as an outsider rather than as an insider. Right, like he doesn't know that Herger's going to go to Valhalla if he dies. <laughs> <laughs> no, he also he, doesn't he, know Herger's um, ability. Right, that's a part of it too. But no, I mean, realistically, I think the motivation is that he doesn't, he really likes Herger and he doesn't yeah. want to see her, he said, I don't want to th see you throw your life away or something in this yeah. fight. And Harger says, like... They're friends at this Yeah, point. they're buds. Bosom companions. Even. Friends. <laughs> Pals. Buddies, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, he's trying to talk Harger out of this, and Harger's like, no, you don't understand. Like, I gotta do this. And so, long story short, he's in this fight with this gigantic dude who's just kicking Harger's ass. Yeah. Like, it's, it's, it seems to be a contest to, like, see who can cut each other's shield down. Yeah, they each get three shields. Yeah. Every time they break one, they, like, go and replace it. And yeah. it's kind of like a contest. And it seems there is like... There a ritualistic part to this combat. Or yeah. It, yes, it's it. ritualized combat. But it seems to end in death. Yes. Like, when, when it seems that Herger has lost, he is basically putting, like, laying down and presenting his neck to be cloven Cut. in twain. Yeah. <laughs> and as Angus goes in for the kill, Herger does this kind of tricky roll, to, roll the to the side and just chops Angus's head off. Yeah. And he walks out of the ring and everybody's just in shock. And he throws down that bag of money. Yes, he pays the wear guild. He, yeah. he plays the the blood cost. Okay. Which is uh, that was so a, a you, Norse tradition where yeah. if you injure somebody or kill somebody, you have to pay a debt either to them if you injured them or to their family to make up for the loss. So he pays the wear guild and walks out, and everybody's just in shock. And Ahmed comes up to him and is like, "You could have killed him at any time." And Herger's yeah. like, "Yes, of course I could have." <laughs> <laughs> But they had to make a show of it. But they had to make the show. They had to show. go through with the whole ritual. Right, exactly. It was important to, to follow through the ritual, but then also to make this kind of grand gesture of showing 
that bovise people are powerful enough to lead. Now, the problem is, as far as the narrative goes, we don't see enough interaction with Wigleaf to have this matter. Right. We like, And then he just kind of goes away. Yeah, he just leaves and never comes back, and that's kind of the end of it. And it's very unsatisfying. At the end of the movie, the whole story with Hrothgar is gone. Like... It's like they tried to get the Hrothgar character in because King Hrothgar is a character from Beowulf right. who, who Beowulf comes to his hall to fight Grendel, you know, like the Wendell. Right. <laughs> and all this stuff. But so when they show up uh, Hrothgar's son, it's very unsatisfying because there's that hasn't really been a plot that we've had any reason to think about or care about. Yeah. But it does kind of go back to this idea about kind of making a name for yourself and kind of showing your prowess, which is these themes work well within the context of a Viking story. It does fit in with the theme, but it does detract from the overall story, like you're saying. Yeah, I, 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 think, see that. I think it hurts the narrative of the movie just because there's this not is, there's nothing built up to it. This is part of the clumsy storytelling where they didn't quite blend Crichton's book very well with the myth. Now, see, and that's what I'm wondering, because I read that when they first showed John McTiernan's cut of this movie it didn't perform well and that Crichton went back and like re-edited it and finished the directorial duty mm. so the version we're seeing even though it's got McTiernan's name on it is technically Crichton's cut if I'm if I'm understanding that right. correctly I, that sounds like it so I mean I don't know what impact that had but it seems like there's just a lot of things wrong with this version of the film the editing is not great the shots are very sloppy. The the oh camera God. work seriously. Is in, the camera work is incredibly <laughs> shaky. There were several times when the camera was shaking while they were trying to get a panning shot, and it's just like, do another take. Yeah. What the fuck? <laughs> this made it into the final edit of a film that cost how much? So, fun fact, this movie apparently cost at least a hundred million dollars. Which is insane that is crazy i mean they must have spent that all on like horses and extras because and there's like the, the viking village yeah building these villages but i mean that's so much money yeah to to make them even for a movie like i mean for a movie that looks this bad seriously they couldn't get another a few more takes when the camera work was fucked up. Seriously, know. it takes you out of the moment and then you're just thinking about what a shitty movie you're watching. Yeah, and it, then, just lo- um, it just looks like crap. There's like other shots where you can see the camera adjusting in and out. <laughs> you can see that the lens <laughs> yeah, is it's, adjusting. Yeah, it's grainy and sloppy and um, like there's reused shots of like the um, the the Vendel's warlord um kind of green screened into a night sky oh, that, was terrible. that like and that is then repeated from a from a more zoomed in angle and without the green screen effect it it really stood out just how bad this movie looked i mean the fight scenes are hard to follow for an action movie to have fight scenes this hard to follow is kind of a a kiss of death and like the final battle between yeah. Bolvi and the Vendel leader is so anticlimactic. There's no build-up. There's no, like, tension in the fight. Bolvi basically just murders this dude without 
almost any effort, and I then know. everyone just disappears. But they like they had hundreds of horseback extras like riding down mountains yeah. and stuff, and like that's got to be where the budget went for this. A lot of it must have been, but it's like both of the scenes where the made the two major deaths of both leaders, the warrior uh, king and and the, and the, the queen mother. mother, both of them were super quick and anticlimactic. Yeah, it's basically just Bolvai just murdering people without any. Effort. He killed both of them. Yeah, I mean, and he's... it is supposed to be like Grendel and Grendel's mother from the Beowulf. But see, it also doesn't work great because like Bolvai again, he's got this great voice i mean i think uh you know vladimir um coolidge is is got a great presence but we get a lot more of fadlon and herger and then they're kind of relegated to these we don't really see i mean herger gets this cool fight scene with angus but that's about it and we don't see much of antonio banderas doing action which he's known for i mean he was zorro and we only get to see him do a few like Flippy sword maneuvers and some cool stunt riding. I don't know if um, if is... he does his own horseback riding or not, but right. like that's about all we get. The big epic moments of the movie are basically with a side character who's the most important person. Yeah, but he's kind of relegated to the side character status. He's the leader, but we don't really spend a lot of time with him, so it, it's not very satisfying. Yeah, it kind of feels like if you were a, the party in an RPG game, and <laughs> you know exactly what you're about to say. You're going to kill the main villain, and an NPC rides in out of nowhere and kills him right before you can get the final blow in. Yeah, or like the DM has been running a character with you as like a support character, and then suddenly he like has Steals him jump in <laughs> and gives him like a massive stat boost. Yeah. Like that time that Gandalf stole that big uh, Balor kill from the rest of the party. Yeah. It is kind of like that. Except we knew Gandalf. We cared about him up to that point. Yeah. We don't really know much about Bolvai. We know Even that he's, he's interested awesome. in... Yeah, again, I, I, I don't think there's any fault of the actor. No. I think that this is just the problem... One of the, sadly, many problems... And I like this movie... But one of the many problems is that it doesn't really know what it wants to be or who it wants to follow. Yeah, that's probably the issue of having too many writers and and creatives working on this. Too many cooks in the kitchen. Yeah, yeah, and then just like way overshooting the budget in terms of like spending too much almost. Yeah. And like having too much freedom to play with too many toys. Yeah, because it it made no sense whatsoever. To have the Vendals on horses. Where yeah. did they keep them? They lived in caves. Yeah, how do they feed them? And then when they go back to their village, you don't see horses anywhere. It's ridiculous. You Horses require huge amounts of food. Yeah. I mean, unless they're... Every single warrior was on horseback. Yeah. When they invaded. Yeah, it's crazy. Well, you know what? This seems like a perfect time to get to our next segment, Evil, Stupid, or Misunderstood, where we talk about the villain of this movie and discuss whether or not they're evil, stupid, or misunderstood. And I guess in this case, the 
villain is evil and stupid. The Vendels, <laughs> and they're evil and stupid. No, they're not stupid. They're the the <laughs> writing of I, them is stupid. Yes, that's what I mean. <laughs> they're yeah, just that's evil. Fair. We don't get anything. We get no redemptive. This is the uncritical part of the writing that we were talking about. Yes. Like, they're written in a way where they're just evil. There's no motivation that we can understand. Where the audience is meant to accept the perspective of the Vikings. Yeah, we have no sympathy for them. I mean, we actually, honestly, like, (laughs) this is crazy, but, like, in The Lord of the Rings, I know that there's a lot of issues with how orcs are portrayed. We have more reason to be sympathetic to the orcs and Saruman from Lord of the Rings just because we get their perspective sometimes. They speak. Yeah. To make the the um the Vendels just like mute. Yeah. Just like it it erases any Yeah, it like erases any understanding of where they're coming from or why or what's going on. It just it's it seems like propaganda, honestly. Honestly, it's it's pretty boring. The Vendels. Yeah. Yeah. I would have watched an entire movie of just Ahmad and Harriger being buds and like getting to know each other. Hell yeah, that would have been a way better movie. I think we have <laughs> I think we have the history we're about to rewrite. Yes. <laughs> so yeah, I mean I, I think that the villains of this movie are just stupid. Right. Or I'm sorry, are just evil. Stupidly written and just evil. Right. <laughs> they're not they're the By characters design. the characters aren't stupid like in the narrative of the film. No. They're just like they're like a virus. Yeah. Which also goes back to a lot of narratives about immigrants. Yeah, and, and it's usually a analogy used to dehumanize people. So. Yeah, I mean, this movie Making could... it easier to justify the shitty things you're about to do to them. <laughs> yeah, I mean, this movie is horrendous anti-Vendal propaganda. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Well, on that note, <laughs> I guess it's time to give the movie a rating. We'll use our traditional system of discussing one epic moment or feature from the movie and then giving it a rating between one and ten viking swords chelsea do you want to go first yeah and i'm actually gonna talk about an epic feature okay so i wanted to give a shout out to the interesting costumes that the vendals War. Oh, nice. They had these amazingly recreated bear war costumes. Yeah, that was pretty cool. So their entire body almost was covered in a bear pelt with the head intact, like taxidermied. Yeah. And, and then they had retained... <laughs> Professionally taxidermied. They had retained the paws and claws as well for the hands and feet. So it did make them look non-human. Sadly, we never back get to our other theme. We never get many good shots of them. It's all kind of blurry shots when they're fighting, but you do get to see some of it. Yeah. And so I thought the way those kind of war cloaks looked were really cool. It was a neat yeah. feature. I'm no, gonna... the Venoms looked really cool. You know, we've we've kind of picked this movie apart and opened it <laughs> in a new one, or ripped a new one. <laughs> yeah, I mean, much like that one Vendel in the movie in one of the fight scenes, we really stabbed this movie in the ass. <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> but I still like it for some reason, even though it's a terrible movie. That's fair. So I'm going to give it a 5 out of 10 swords. That, I think, is... Viking swords, not, not shitty you. scimitars. <laughs> 
Not that scimitars are shit. No. Just the, I'm the talking about shitty scimitars. Yeah, exactly. Like the one that he kind of, for, not really forged. In the yeah, the one that he ruined. Yeah, basically. Yeah, I, I have a really cool scimitar. I think yeah. scimitars are rad. Yeah, they are. Okay, so yeah, five cool. out of ten. <laughs> <laughs> Got it. My epic moment for this is just one of my favorite things I've seen in a long time. Uh, in the the last fight, there's this great character. I think he's like a blacksmith or something. He's this total silver fox, just giant buff Viking guy who's like driving. Um, like earlier in the movie, he's like driving spikes into the ground, like just barehanded, like with a hand, not barehanded, but like with a hammer. Like other people are like having to like have one person holding the spike up and then the other guy driving it. And, and this guy can do it by himself. Oh, yeah. And there's this scene in the last battle when the Vendels are attacking. And this dude, who I don't even know if he has a name, clotheslines a horse. <laughs> and knocks the horse down and knocks the Vendel off of it. And then yeah. gets totally boromired. He gets shot with, like, 12 arrows. Yeah. And, like, doesn't go down until, like, the 12th arrow or whatever Basically has hit him. Basically, every single warrior coming into the battle was fucking sticking him in something. Yeah, this guy <laughs> clotheslines a horse, and suddenly every Vendo knows, fuck, we gotta murder this guy's ass. <laughs> So they just all like sharpshooter him. His ass. <laughs> yeah, they, so they murder his ass. Like, but this guy was awesome. He's this yeah. huge buff dude, and like the the that was like the best shot like action sequence was yeah. this great like uh, you know good horse training. I mean, obviously they pulled it off. They must have had amazing horse trainers in this yeah. because there were so many horses. At a time, like, moving in formation. It was more than one typical cavalry worth of horses. Like. Yeah. <laughs> but, you know, so we've got, you know, from from our first episode where Conan punches out a camel. Yeah. Now we've got this dude clotheslining a horse. I don't condone violence of any kind, especially I don't like violence against animals at all. But that shot in the movie is so ridiculous that it's just one of my favorite things I've seen. Yeah. So that's my epic moment. <laughs> I'm going to give this movie a 6 out of 10 okay. swords. It's deeply flawed. But for me, I, I legitimately have loved Harriger since the first time I saw this movie. And every time I watch it, he grows on me a little bit more. Yeah, he's still endearing every single time. I love that he's this wise, cunning, charismatic, friendly guy who is just, like, the person you want on your side. Right. I totally dig that, so... He's supportive on and off the battlefield. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm going to give this a, a one more point than you did, just because of, of my sheer adoration yeah, of boy. Herger. My boy, Herger. Okay. On that note, this is normally where we'd head to the bounty board, but... I don't think we have any bounties for you today, but yeah. that's okay. Oh, or even better, I do have a bounty. Why don't you shoot us an email at swordsandsatire at gmail.com and ask us some questions so that we have some stuff to talk about on the bounty board. Oh, cool. Yeah. <laughs> nice. 
Well, then on that note, I guess it's time to rewrite history. Yes. This is the part of the podcast where we discuss ideas for a sequel, a reboot, or a spinoff of the movie we just watched. So I think our best idea so far, and perhaps our only idea, involves a reboot Ah. of this movie. Okay. And I liked your idea of just following, uh, what was it, Herger? Herger and Ahmad. Herger and Ahmad as becoming best buds. Yeah, I think a, a new focus would be good. Um, I think I'd like to introduce some more sympathetic villains. Yes. Or, or you know, antagonists. Yeah. Uh, get some like some motivation that an audience can kind of grip onto, you know. Then, um, so this is interesting because just to kind of like support this idea, uh, this means Ahmad would be kind of leaning into his role as a historian or an ethnologist. Oh yeah, a I little like that. bit more, and and not having to go the warrior route, he can be an important character without having to be a combatant. So a little bit more of a historical accuracy. Yeah. I mean, I'm not necessarily opposed to him being a warrior, per se. Mm -hmm. I like the idea of him and Herger being, like, a team. I like the idea that they can be, like, despite their differences, they can be friends and they can see value in what each other does. Sure. Yeah. But, I mean, at the end of the day, like, we kind of want it to be an action movie, right, to follow through. Well, that's why you have all the other characters who can do all that, though. Oh, so we're keeping them, too. Yeah. Okay. I mean, Bullvi and his crew are some awesome dudes. Yo, for sure. I mean, they're great Vikings. Yeah. I guess we would have to build up their characters more, too. We'd have yeah. to get more into Bullvi's history, why it's important to him to leave a legacy. This would be important to spend time in their encampment a little bit more. Yes. I would like to see a little bit more of that. I'd cut probably the Hrothgar thing. I know that that's like an important part of the Beowulf myth or story, but I'd like to kind of make this a little bit more original. Yeah, and trying to blend that together, I do love the Beowulf myth, but it just doesn't work. Yeah, it doesn't work in this context. Right. Especially where... So, I mean, there's that movie Beowulf and Grendel with um, Gerard Butler, (laughs) our boy. We're going to have to watch that sometime. Oh, absolutely. Where we kind of get a more sympathetic portrayal of Grendel, the the monster from the story. Right. But that is not the route that this movie is taking. And it's and it's more about like this group of enemies. So I'd like to get more a little I I'd, I would cut the stuff with Hrothgar in favor of Getting some scenes where we actually see the motivations of the Vendel, where we give and them And maybe they're dialogue. like a warring group with Bulvi and his people. Right, So exactly. there's no travel. A big portion of the movie will be their skirmishes and conflicts, and maybe Ahmad's uh, working to try to be a diplomat, like fulfill his Ooh. role as a diplomat. Ooh, I like that. Ambassador. He could mm-hmm. he could try to help kind of mend... Negotiate uh, some kind of treaty between the two peoples. Mending the fence. Yeah. Can a fence be mended after both sides have given so much blood? Marriage is how you do it. Oh, wow. Between people on each side. Interesting. Yeah. And then we just end the movie with so the 13th you... wedding. <laughs> Well, you know, then that would actually make this an interesting take on the history that led to the Viking myths of, you know, the Norse myths. Because in that story, you know, a lot of people think that the the Norse myths are 
um, an allegory for histo- an older historical period. Mm-hmm. And the two characters, the Freya and Freyr, are Vanir, whereas the other gods, Odin and, and Thor and Tyr and everything, are... The Aesir. Are Aesir. Mm-hmm. So, you know, the idea is that there was probably some intermarriage at some point where Freya and Freyr married in, or, you know, the, the people that they're based on, or just the idea that they're based on, married into the Aesir, and that's how they kind of found peace with each other. Right. So this could kind of work as a as a version of that, where we're kind of so explaining So you're drawing that. on the Norse, Norse myths. That's cool. Yeah, like exactly. That. Yeah, like kind of doing an origin story of that. Hey, you know what else this movie could use? Some female characters that matter. Yeah, how about that? That'd be, that'd be crazy, that'd right? That'd be cool. I mean, especially now with as we're finding more and more evidence of historical Viking woman warriors, yeah. women burials that we're, we're showing are are out there and we're, we're digging up and doing analysis of these grave goods and so stuff. So core warriors could have been women. Yeah, absolutely. Yep. Why not? There's no reason not and, to. And in the Vandal side. Oh, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Like, I, I think both sides could have a variety of genders. Right. Uh, again... Perfectly in line with, you know, the Norse uh, traditions and stories where they worship a gender-bending god of war and poetry, as uh, I think a great way to describe Odin, who travels through the different worlds, taking on different forms. You know, you've got Loki, who is a mother and a father in the myths, who's a shape-changer. I'm just realizing, like, something that would help kind of push the story forward so maybe about the midpoint is when you'd have these cross marriages i would say maybe later but yeah maybe well, so middle hear me, middle hear me to, out hear me out middle of second act beginning of third act i have an idea here midpoint of the movie because after this point this is when the fucking supernatural threat comes in and they Ooh. have a common enemy that they have to fight against to even further solidify their bonds nice good tie back to this movie and the connection between Ahmad and Herger. So what kind of supernatural threat would they be facing? Oh, man. We may as well make it magical. I don't, I don't want to do giants. I mean, I have a, a whole new appreciation for giants after playing God of War. Yeah. Spoilers, I guess. I Sorry. guess I was thinking, like, goblins. Yeah, but that's often... Trolls, maybe. I was thinking more supernatural than Angry that. ghosts. Yeah. Viking ghosts. Yeah. More like Barrowites. Droggers? Droggers and Barrowites. Yeah. Then we're just making Skyrim. So what? They are, it's already so similar. <laughs> we may as well. I, yeah, it, it's, it's the uh, layers on layers, right? Yeah. <laughs> this inspired Skyrim, which inspired our new story. So there maybe there's like a sorcerer who is raising the dead Viking warriors. Oh, a Creating the Droggers, yeah. Oh, yeah, they would hate that. Yeah. <laughs> no, tell you what, nobody likes that. No, people like it when they're, they're dead, dead. Stay dead. Stay dead. <laughs> See, like these could be ancient warriors when they had different burial practices. Oh, nice. Not as protected as the new modern technology. Of fire. Of fire. <laughs> the, ah, that, that new, uh, you, you young kids and your fire. Yeah, yeah. 
Oh, that's so, amazing. Right. <laughs> so, yeah, that, that would be pretty cool. And so they have to... There's some battle against the Draugr until somebody, like, maybe sees the necromancer on a hillock trying to control them, you know, because he has to chant to control them. And um, they kind of are able to follow him back to his lair, perhaps, and they figure out a way to capture him. Okay. I dig yeah. it. Yeah. No, what would they do? I mean, this movie, like, chop, probably his, chop, his, chop head his head off. off. <laughs> yeah, exactly what I was saying. Yeah. There's, there's, beheading is kind of a big thing in this movie. Yeah. I think this is already a better movie. Oh, absolutely. We've got character, we've got development, we've got the middle part that we can call my Big Fat Norse Wedding. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> then people are going to fucking take that and make dinner theater out of it. <laughs> oh, God, I would love Viking... I would love Viking dinner theater. Yeah. That sounds amazing. That would be actually pretty fun. What a blast. Yeah, cool. All right, well... Then I guess at this point it's time for the side quest where we suggest another piece of fantasy fiction that you could go out and enjoy after you're done watching The 13th Warrior. Um, so this is an oldie but a goodie. I want to suggest Stephen King's and Peter Straub's book, The Talisman. Ooh, I know you love this one. This is one of my favorite all-time books. I reread it every once in a while. It's a coming-of-age story about a young man who is trying to find a way to cure his mother's cancer. And uh, he goes on an epic quest uh, through different lands, on Earth and otherwise, and uh, faces foes much greater than himself to try to find a magical cure for his mother. Ah. It's, a, it's a very fantastical story, um, more typical of... King's earlier works and his work um, on the Gunslinger series. I was going to say, how connected is this uh, universe to the Dark Tower? About 80%. Oh, wow. That's an impressive number. Yeah. To 100. Okay. Perfect. It is extremely closely related to the Gunslinger series. So Do we need a spoiler warning? No. Okay. I mean, maybe. <laughs> Uh-oh. Well, we've been bad about warnings this episode, so um, why get any better now? I, I mean, I have there's so much detail that is is so rich in this story uh, that I haven't divulged here, so I think you're safe. It's still very interesting. It's just like I think that it will change your understanding of the book, knowing that ahead of time. But these have all been out for so fucking long. I am not sorry. <laughs> That's fair. <laughs> and, um, and, and so, are you also going to let people know that Darth Vader is Luke Skywalker's father? Ooh, too soon. Oof. <laughs> so yeah, I, I highly recommend that book. And there's actually a sequel that they uh, Stephen King and Peter Straub uh, co-wrote together not that long ago. Uh, it came out where the main character is all grown up, and it's about his. Uh, uh, he becomes uh, an investigator. But they should read that after they've read the original. Definitely. So the the uh, sequel is called The Black House. Ah, cool. Both are very good. Very different, but good. Cool. Yeah. I'll have to read that myself then. So the, the first one is like a, a fantasy tale. Cool. Uh, uh, where he I love on, fantasy. Where he goes on this quest, right? But the second book feels more like a murder mystery. Oh, no yeah. wonder you like it so much. Yeah. But they're both really good. All right. Well, thank yeah. you. Thank you for that suggestion. Yes. Then I guess it's time for us to 
hit the old bloody trail and uh, strap on our Viking helmets and our broadswords and uh, head off to Asgard. Yep. <laughs> but we'd like to thank... Riding with the Valkyries. That's right. But we'd like to thank you for joining us and listening to our thoughts on the 13th Warrior. Uh, hopefully we'll have Jack back next week. Yes. He is getting ready for school, so... Like a coward. <laughs> No, no. School is number one. Yeah. So we, we let him off the hook this time. <laughs> just just once. Last time it was for the plague. Right. Mostly because we didn't want to get the plague. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, you can uh, follow us on Instagram or Facebook to find out what we watched that week and to get some great memes under your belt. Damn right. You can also shoot us an email at swordsandsatire at gmail.com. And if you enjoyed this week's episode and you don't mind heading on over to apple podcast and leaving us a nice little rating and review we would be oh so thankful we would reserve you a seat in odin's golden hall wow that is a great boon yeah i hope i don't get in trouble for saying that i guess you'd be giving up your seat oh wait no uh you know what i take that back (laughs) that's okay i worship freya okay there you go But on that note, until next time, Hail Hail Crom. Crom!